Welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community, and we would love the opportunity to connect with you in person. One way to do that is to join us in Dallas this September 24th through the 25th at the National Faith Driven Entrepreneur Conference at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. We'll be recording live episodes and joined by friends like Andy Crouch, Phil Vischer, and the leaders of this movement. Go to our website to register. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. Sadly, I have worked with companies that start with a prayer and call them Christian companies, but there is no value that really shows that they are Christian companies, that they truly care for their employees, that they truly respect them as part of the organization, that they truly want to create excellence for all concerned. On the other hand, I sat down, and this is even more shocking to me, I sat down with an organization very recently and said, let's establish who we want to be. Do we want to be a leader in our industry, in the country? And this Christian company, he said, oh, that's too arrogant as a Christian company. You must be kidding me. As a Christian company, you don't want the best for your employees. You don't want the best for your customer. You don't want the best for your... This is ludicrous. We should shine as Christian companies. We should want the best for our investors, the best for our customers, the best for employees, do the best for society. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Today's guest is one that... He really doesn't need an introduction, but we'll introduce him anyway. We're excited to have a conversation with Horst Schultz. Horst is the co-founder of a company that you will recognize. He is a co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. Horst also partnered with Arch Plus Tower, a customer and employee experience consulting group, in order to produce a comprehensive masterclass, a true masterclass of employee and customer experience training content that is used by many, many, many companies. Horst has an honorary doctorate of business administration, a degree in hospitality management from Johnson and Wales University. He is the author of Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise. Horst is so full of insight, wisdom, and experience that it's going to be just a ripe episode for any faith-driven entrepreneur. So don't let me keep you from him any longer. Let's listen in with our conversation. Horst, we are so excited to have you on the show today and eager to jump right into our conversation. Our listeners love stories, and we know that you've got a great one. And we established before we went live that you and I are both German, although you're going to sound much more credible as a German than I. But share your story, start in Germany, and talk about uh, your decision to work in the hotel business. Well, yeah, I tell this uh, in my book very carefully. So if anybody has a book, you will be bored. But going back, I was 11 years old, where for some reason, I don't know why, nobody knows why, I went to my parents and said, I want to work in the hotel business. And they said, okay, with a, yeah, yeah, and forgot about it. But I kept on saying it and kept on begging for it. But that was not the thing to do in Germany after the war years. And everybody went into technical job. And it is honorable in Germany to have a hand-working job, they call it. 
handarbeit. The meaning, if I'm a carpenter, that's honorable. If I'm a butcher, anything, it's honorable. Or mm -hmm. engineer, now that would be really honorable. But hotel business, it was about the lowest you could want. But I kept on insisting on it. My parents looked into it. They were advised to find the best hotel in their region. They found a hotel 100 kilometers away, which was by far the best in the region. So with 14, I left. Uh, but of course, my parents were worried by that time because this is a famous, very excellent hotel. They had admonished me now. This is a hotel where we could never go. This is where fine ladies and gentlemen go. Mm -hmm. Important people go there. We couldn't go there. But at the same time, the village kind of laughed, going to work as a busboy, trying to become a cook and a waiter. So anyway, my mother took me there. The first thing, the general manager meets me and tells me the same thing. You are a servant here, and the guests are very important. Don't be envious, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. And next, I meet the maitre d' of the hotel, who changed my life, frankly. He was a key mentor. Of course, I was very young and accepted a lot at the time, but that was my key mentor in my life. When I met him, the first thing he said was, there were two other kids, by the way, same age, started at the same time. Tomorrow morning, you all come to work at 7 o'clock, but really never from the here on come to work. Come to work every day to create excellence in what you're doing. Well, mind you, that went over my head with 14. What is excellent in washing dishes, cleaning tables, cleaning the restaurant, and so on. Now, the system in Germany is such that once a week you go to hotel school or, or the school of your metier, that's what you're doing. In my case, hotel restaurant. So all the kids from the region come there. Wednesdays, we went there. After two years, in the meantime, I started to understand what he meant with excellence. But after two years, the teacher asked us in school, write an essay what you now feel about your business. Going back to work, I cleaned the table in the corner when I could feel that the metal D had entered the room. It, truly, he was somebody that had such a presence, you could feel it. I turned around, saw him approach the table, and I realized I'd seen it, but I never really totally realized it. I realized that people at the table that he approached were mm. proud that he came to them. He talked to them, went to the next table, and I realized all guests in the room think he's the most important person in the room. So did we, the employees. So when I started my essay, which I was supposed to write, I want to write about him, about that. And I want to write something I realized for the first time in my life, that I can define myself. He was respected by everyone because he refined himself as a person of excellence and delivered excellence. And it became clear to me, mind you, in view of that people laughed at me and the village and so on, it came clear to me, I can define myself as a real gentleman. So it is up to me, not up to anybody else. Not any negative comment. I can define myself. So I named that as a, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. If we are excellent in what we're doing, then we yes. are ladies and gentlemen. 
and we serve, ladies and gentlemen, but we are not servants unless we are sentenced ourselves by mediocrity to be just nothing but servants. And I wrote that essay and it had a, was a major success and it impacted me because it's the only A I ever had in my life before or after. So consequently, it impacted me, it stayed with me and I kind of made it the mantra of my life, try and create excellence and it lived with me. So that's kind of the story where I came from. I eventually, from there on, I worked in the finest hotels in Europe, and I don't just say that. I worked in the absolute finest hotels in Europe and came after a few years to the U.S. and started working with Hyatt's and Hilton's and so on. And eventually was offered to start a new hotel company. Before you get there, though, Horst, because I want to hear this part of the story, and I know that our listeners do too, but I wonder if they're like me and then I'm finding myself fascinated by this Mater D because everybody knows what Ritz Carlton has become. But there is somebody who is so good about their craft and also beyond being good about their craft, he must have taken an interest in you. And a lot of entrepreneurs are influenced by mentors. They're influenced by role models. I don't know that this Mater D will ever understand. Maybe he does. Maybe you stayed in touch with him about what he birthed by believing in you and by being able to portray this excellence and live it out. Tell me a little bit more about your relationship with him and what it was that made such an impression. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I had to laugh. The relationship was, well, he was constantly teaching. And mm -hmm. at that time, I knew that was 54, 55 and so on. There was a total different attitude about this. We worked 12 hours a day and so on. A few times, he kicked me literally in the derriere. Oh my Literally. goodness, kick your ass. But, yeah, that's it, you know. And We can and, say that on the FTE podcast. I think so. But it was simply a moment when it was very clear to me that I needed it. You know? yeah. So it, there was a funny moment when I, we served a table. They had the service and, and from a platter onto the plate. There was a, a banquet. And mind you, this was hungry time too. And the, the food for the employees was lousy. Then there was a tray and we served a small fillet of veal and a small fillet of beef. And I served it and the one lady said, no beef. Mm -hmm. So I had on my tray a little fillet left. And on, on the way out, and just thinking nobody saw it, I took it and put it in my pocket of my tails that I wore. You know, the tails that they wear, there's, sure. a, there's a pocket in there. And he ran behind, behind me, he saw it. I didn't know he saw it and put hot sauce into it and kicked me for stealing. Well, you know, or I, there was some wine left and I took a swig out of it from, from, the, from the bottle and bang, it hit me from behind. I didn't know he was there. You know, he always then did one thing. He explained. He said, here is what I did and here's why I did it. And here's whom I want you to be. Yeah. He never did anything. Or when he explained, he always gave you motive and objective. He said, here is the objective, what I want you to accomplish, and here's why. Mm. That is a true mentor. That is a true mentor. It reminds me of, it, it's kind of fascinating, it reminds me of Adam Smith, who wrote Wealth of Nation. He wrote another story about a human being, and he said, Adam Smith said, I don't know if my mentor read that, Adam Smith said people cannot relate to orders and direction. People can only relate to objective and motive. And he did that. He never gave an order and direction, he gave objective and motive. 
it consequently, it was easy to buy in. And, and it's crazy that after 300 years after Adam Smith wrote that, what do we do? We give orders and direction. Knowing full well, people cannot buy into it. Yeah, that's And brilliant. it seems he knew that. And he always explained, and he, you know, he never kicked you that he got injured. He, kicked, he wanted to make a statement. Yeah, yeah. And he laughed about it, and we laughed about it, and nobody sued him. <laughs> you know? yeah. Does he in know fact, what you became? In fact, we appreciated it. Yeah. Does he know what you became? And no, he passed away as I worked still as a waiter in Europe oh. and came down to the United States. Okay, so tell us more about that. So bring us back in further on in your journey. I had interrupted you before, but please continue. No, well, I worked, as I said, in the greatest hotel, the Plaza de the Paris, the Savoy London, the Barclay London, and so on. And then came to the U.S., worked in various places, joined Hyatt, which was a wonderful company, just a tremendous company. I joined, but in the meantime, I was director of food and beverage for a hotel. Mm-hmm. and became rooms director after two years, became general manager after two years. Three years later, became regional vice president and then corporate vice president for Hyatt uh, for 65 hotels. And then I got a call that there was people developing a hotel, two hotels in Atlanta, and they wanted to create their own brand. They were developers and financial people. They were involved in construction. So they promised me that operationally I could do what I wanted with the company. I looked at it and I said, gee, the leaders and the, the corporate leaders, not individual hotels, there were many great ones, but the corporate leaders were in the continental, Hilton International, Hyatt in the world. And I thought, if I would start a new brand, I would start above them and kind of incorporate the European service and professionalism, but the caring and gentle attitude of American service and the more relaxing. And that's kind of what I combined. And that's when I accepted the job, moved to Atlanta and started a new hotel company. Can we guess that their last names were Ritz and Carlton or how did that come about? Well, Ritz, by the way, the name goes back very many years. Mr. Ritz created three Ritz hotels in Europe and one of them in London, and he created the Carlton Hotel in London. His family then came over here in the 20s and started a new hotel company called Ritz Carlton. They all bankrupted. There was one hotel left that carried the name. That was the Ritz Carlton in Boston, an old, very dilapidated hotel. No air conditioning and so on. It was the monthly renters lived there by room. And we started this new hotel company and we were able to buy that hotel, which was in a great location. And also they had a name that was registered around the world. So we adopted the name, but took the hotel and closed it for renovation. So the first hotel that we actually opened was the Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta Buckhead in January 1984, a little bit over a year after I joined here. A few months later, we opened the Ritz-Carlton downtown Atlanta. So the whole philosophy was to me to take service to another level and really understand the market and align my employees against that market, against the expectation of what the market wanted, high-end market and hotel business, and make sure that the employees don't just know how to do the job, but want to do the job. That was the whole issue. 
how do I create an environment where employees want to do the job rather than have to do the job? You see, business is very simple. And, and you guys, you talk to other industries generally, but it's all the same. The decision is not made based on the product itself that the customer has about you. The decision is based on the relationship that you have with them. That may be business to business or whatever, nevertheless, there is a person who talks to them. So, and if you give them at the same time what they want and have a great relationship, they will be your customers. Think about your left hand over here. There are, you see in your left hand, a lot of people. Those are your customers. Those are potential customers and your customers. On the right hand, look at there. There are a lot of people there too. They are your employees. So what happens? If we know exactly what the people in your left hand want, your customer want, mm -hmm. and at the same time, your employees all know exactly what the customer wants, and you create as management, you create processes, controls, and systems so your employees will deliver to these customers what they want, not what you want, what the customer wants, then you have a business going. But if you add leadership to it, to your employees, and create an environment where the employees don't only have to do it, but where they want to do it, in that moment, you will be invariably superior to your competition. Right, because right. Well, that comes back to that motive thing that you were talking about, right? If you can exactly. get to the heart of the motive. Exactly. Um, Horst, to build on that and to bring this together, what role has your faith brought to finding that motive of excellence? Because, yeah. you know, we, many of the entrepreneurs that we talk to, we talk about the need to be excellent at what you do. And especially if you're trying to bring glory to God in your work, you need to strive for excellence. But I think your story of how you meld those together could be very informative to our listeners. Yeah, it's very simple. I mean, I believe in setting a vision. The, even the Bible says people will perish without vision. If you go back, Aristotle wrote that people, in order to be fulfilled, need purpose, vision, and need to belong. And, and everybody, any analyst ever has determined the same thing. If people need purpose, then I have an obligation as a leader to give them purpose. That means the vision of the organization. I, as a leader, have to establish the vision of the organization. Where do I want to be in five years or 10 years as an organization? Once I have established that, I have to question myself, as a Christian particularly, is this good? Is my vision, which I have established here for this organization, or for myself for that matter, what is this vision good for all concerned? In an organization, I have to question myself, not just simple answers, but agonize about it. Is my vision of this company good for all concerned? Is it good for the investors? If it is yes, I have to go on. Is it good for the customer? Yes. Is it good for the employee? Every employee, if I accomplish that vision, if I go for that vision, yes. Then I have to question, is it good for society? If the answer is yes, not just a simple yes, please. Agonize. Is it really good for everybody? If this answer is yes, then you have to question yourself, would God approve? And if that is all true, then you know what to do as a leader. In that moment, you have no more right to compromise. Not for yourself, nor anybody else. Then you know what to do. You know what decisions to make. Everything has to be driven by that vision because that vision was approved by God and is of value to all concerned. What else? There is no question about it. It is not that you run around and tell people you are a Christian company 
but will God approve the purpose of your organization? And are you concentrating on that purpose? There's nothing to do with hospitality and so on, except hospitality is the relationship with your customer, which is the greatest driver of customer loyalty eventually, no matter what business you're in. I love the idea of uh, asking, and, and as you said, really wrestling and struggling with each one of the constituents around the vision, but yes. that finally, would God approve? And I think that's something that, you know, people probably don't ask themselves enough, right? You get all the way down through society and then you stop and say, would God approve? And then from then on, you can't compromise. I well, absolutely well, sadly, I mean, guys, sadly, I have worked with companies that start with a prayer and call them Christian companies, but there is no value that really shows that they are Christian company, that they truly care for their employees, that they truly respect them as part of the organization, that they truly want to create excellence for all concerned. On the other hand, I sat down, and this is even more shocking to me, I sat down with an organization very recently and said, let's establish who we want to be. Do we want to be a leader in our industry, in the country? And this Christian company, he said, oh, that's too arrogant as a Christian company. You must be kidding me. As a Christian company, you don't want the best for your employees. You don't want the best for your customer. You don't want the best for your... This is ludicrous. We should shine as Christian companies. We should want the best for our investors, the best for our customers, the best for employees, do the best for society. So, you know, if you question yourself, is my objectives, and do I concentrate on those objectives constantly, would God approve of them? And that is, in my opinion, when you're a Christian company. So this is all fascinating to me. I think that some of the things that I've picked up so far are, of course, the objective and the motive and being able to paint a vision. Without vision, people perish, as you mentioned. One of the things that, in my experience as a customer of Ritz-Carlton, is the quality of the people. Undoubtedly, casting vision helps. Undoubtedly, giving them an objective and a motive. And yet there's another part of that equation, I think, that must fall in as well, which is hiring people, bringing the right people on. Do you have a philosophy on that? Or is it that you can bring anybody into this, but something tells me you must be selective about who you bring into the company? You cannot. Of course, your company is not being managed by the statements that I made. The company consequently, as I said, I have to know what the customer wants. I have to align the processes and everything around what I want and be sure my employees know it. But the processes and so on have to be established. How do I have to, I have to make sure that I have employees who will understand, who will buy in, who will have the talent to do what I expect them to do in the particular job category for the customer. And those are processes. Consequently, we didn't hire people. We selected people. We determined what is the talent needed in each job category? What is the talent needed? Now, we had an outside company help us with that. And then we created a selection process by which we identify if the employee has that talent, and etc. And that was the selection process. So the whole system of making sure your employees work right starts with the selection very clearly. And you don't just hire anybody. In my industry, during my time in Ritz-Carlton, mind you, I created another company, which is higher luxury, 
Capella afterwards, which I sold two years ago. But in the industry during my Ritz Carlton time in the US, the employee turnover was over 100% a year in a hotel. Now, if you have that type of a turnover, how do you hire then? I can tell you, if they hired a guy that was able to walk without falling down for the last 50 feet, they hired them. If he didn't fall down because he was too drunk, they hired them. When you have a 100% turnover, that's what you do. But that's what you get in turn. That's how you get a 100% turnover. If you don't spend the time in carefully selecting. And our turnover in Ritz-Carlton was under 20%. We didn't pay more. Now, they naturally made more money in tips in our hotels than they made in another. But we had people desiring to work for us. I mean, everybody in the industry was crying that you can't get any help. And it's up to you. You're the leader. You have to establish what can I do to overcome this situation and not just explain the situation that exists. So on that idea of assessment, which, uh, by the way, for anybody who's listening who doesn't understand, 20% turnover in hospitality is an amazing number. When, amazing. I, when, I worked at, when I worked at Pizza Hut for a short amount of time at PepsiCo, it was 140%, yeah. you know, one four zero. So the 20% is phenomenal. In that assessment and testing that you were doing, though, to find that quality talent, were there certain indicators that you saw as a pattern in those yeah, employees yeah, that yeah. you looked for? Yeah, in each shop category that we had, we identified those issues and determined them during our interviewing process. Silly things. For example, I always I had to laugh about it because when I run into this issue, this situation, we, our doorman, and um, you understand, doormen are outside by wind and weather, snow, ice, storm, and heat. They're outside. So we select somebody. So we found after we did, after uh, we found we had to look for people that like outside activities. And after we were in business for a while, we again analyzed and took our five best doormen and analyzed them again, what is common to them. So we further improve our interviewing process for doormen. It turned out that all five liked gardening. Those were our five best doormen. Now, I had to laugh so much when I heard that. Yeah, but what would we do under normal hiring without having this careful selection? We would probably hire somebody like that and put them into a computer room. And after a few weeks, they absolutely hated inside and quit. <laughs> right. You know? So, we, yes, we found clearly common others, of course. The doorman had other common denominators but we found very clear common denominators to each shop category and found consequently they have the talent to do that job well that's fascinating well you mentioned the gardener right you know to what you sow you reap right so that person who's out front uh matters so much uh that's fascinating right. that's right hey horst in this time that we're recording this and someone may be listening to this years from now, but you know, to mark this time, we're in the middle of this corona pandemic and we have hospitality service industries that are in this very moment trying to figure out what to do next. And I'm sure you've been through your many different kinds of crises and emergencies and things that are urgent. What words of advice would you give the, the entrepreneurs who are out there who have service or hospitality employees in a time where you know, we're seeing the 
the tide just kind of go away? Well, if I would run a hotel right now, the first thing I would think, wait a minute, I'm going to call the hospitals. If they need beds, I have beds here. Okay, that's the first thing. Maybe somebody can really surf here very, very well. If I'm close to a hospital, our hotels in Atlanta would be close to several hospitals. I would call them and say, all right, is there something I can support you with here? And then when that happens, how is it that I then am able to check into the Ritz-Carlton if I get sick? Well, no, I would, I would offer them, I, as I say, I would offer the hospital something, yeah. I shouldn't joke about something as serious as this. I spent some time in a hospital. I mean, I can guarantee you I would later disinfect the hotel again and make sure that, that you're safe. That's my responsibility. My responsibility is to do the best for you as a customer, and that means to protect you, protect the employee and so on. At the same time, that's the first thing. If they don't need me, and I would say, all right. I'm absolutely running a totally clean hotel and people are not traveling. That's the issue. I would promote here in Atlanta. This is a chance to experience the Ritz-Carlton. I promise you one thing. We check everybody's temperature before they come in. But if you, for very little money, for one third the normal cost of our rooms, come and experience the Ritz-Carlton. Somehow you're going to get busy. There is an answer everywhere. And that's for sure I would do. I would say, come in here, enjoy the spa and so on. We will... This, in fact, nonstop in this hotel, you have very little chance to, to catch the virus here, less than you have it in the street. That's how I would work it out and say, this is the experience. Come in and experience a great weekend. We serve great food. We're keeping people far apart and so on. There is an answer to everything. The leadership is not there to constantly explain what is wrong in the moment. Leadership has to constantly seek answers to the present situation. Well said. Well I love said. That. that is great. That is great. One of the things we like to wrap up with on every podcast interview, Horst, is a little bit of a view into the way that you see God working in your life, particularly in His Word. Is there anything over the season, maybe over the course of the last month, maybe this last week, or maybe even today, that in God's Word you're finding some encouragement, something that uh, you feel that God is speaking to you about? Well, I think. I mean, people say, why would let God let this happen? I trust that God has a good plan. And sometimes we will all understand it. And we will say, wow, why didn't we see it? And like, I can tell you what I think right now is happening. For me, 25 years I had cancer. I was told I would have a year to live at the time. And there's no doubt, and I'm still here, by the way. That was 25 years ago. All I did at the time, I went on my knees and I had a new relationship with God. I believe that God was knocking on my door at that time. He had knocked on my door many times before. I heard him for a moment and I drifted right into the world again. At that time, God decided in his goodness to knock very loud on my door. And I listened. And I listened. And I think he is, and we better listen now. Otherwise, he may just be preparing us for much more. Unless we listen. Yes. Unless we listen. And that's a corona thing. In general, my life, my time, I just try to understand totally how to finish better, how to finish well. And I'm trying to listen very careful and seeking how to finish well. And uh, I think I start to hear the answers. But, uh, you well, know. What does that uh, give us a view into that a little bit? What are some of those the, answers? The one like? thing I can tell you when I turned 80, I'm 81, a little bit more than 81. When I turned 80, I woke up and said, Gee, how great I made it here. Mind you, I had 24 years ago, I, I was told by every doctor I would die. Yeah. I was so thankful that morning. And then I said, this is just 
wonderful. And I look back at my life. I spent some good time contemplating my life. And you know what? The only regrets that I had were the sins that I committed. Mm-hmm. That shows how right God is. So with other words, if I would have read the book right and listened 100%, I would have had a life without regrets. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, so he tells me that. He tells me that and so on. And I'm exploring. I'm exploring that very strongly now in any way and how I could communicate this in the right way to people. If you stay away from doing things wrong, you will live a life without regrets. Wow. Nobody has accomplished that. You have to... But I had that chance, but I have the chance to do that at least for now and serve the Lord at the same time. Yeah. There's incredible mental wisdom in that. Thank you very much for sharing. Uh, thank you for this whole podcast. Thank you for your leadership and the example you've set. Thank you for the, the millions of customers that you've loved well. Thank you for the thousands and thousands of employees that you've done the same with and shown them how to love. Great example for us all. We may not all be in the hospitality business so to speak, uh, and that we run hotels. And yet hospitality is absolutely something that every entrepreneur encounters. And so we've gotten a glimpse into how to do that well. And I thank you very much. We thank you very much for sharing your story and being with us. Great to be with you. And uh, I hope hope you're reading my book. Then you know even much more. Yes, absolutely. Check out that book on Amazon and anywhere that you'd buy books by Horst about excellence. It's a great one. Excellence wins because it does. Amen. Amen. As we come to the close of this week's episode, we'd like to spotlight a ministry that is locking arms with faith-driven entrepreneurs. This week, we want to share about our friends at Right Now Media at Work. They're on a mission to help your team flourish in every area of life, wherever life takes you. With their app of more than 20,000 on-demand videos on topics like leadership and teamwork and professional development, from leaders like Patrick Lencioni, Liz Bohannon and John Acuff, thousands of businesses like Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, Interstate Batteries, and even the United States Air Force chaplains are using Right Now Media at Work to serve their teams. You can learn more about Right Now Media at Work by visiting them at rightnowmediaatwork.org. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over 100 countries. But it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco.